Lord, we do praise you. We thank you for this opportunity where we can gather together here corporately and openly praise you. Lord, we thank you, all of us. We thank you, Lord, for interrupting our story. And Lord, in that, changing it so that we have a story that, that has a glorious ending. Lord, we thank you for giving us a song. Lord, you are so good to us, so full of grace and mercy. Lord, how can we do anything other than sing your praises all the day long? Lord, I thank you for this time that we have to gather here together this morning. What a blessing it is. Lord, now as we turn our attention from singing your praises to studying your word, I pray that our worship of you continues, that our hearts would be receptive and open to what you have for us. You alone are worthy of all glory, all honor and praise, and we give that to you this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Go ahead and have a seat. beginning to look a lot like Christmas <laughs> everywhere I go. Take out your Bibles with me if you would. One, one, uh, one announcement that if it was made, I'm going to repeat. If it wasn't, I'll just let you know. Next Sunday already, next Sunday night, December 1st, is our Christmas dinner. Now, I know that <laughs> seems really early in the season, and it is. It was the night that we could get it lined up at the place where we're going to have it. It was the only one available left. So next Sunday night, if you don't have tickets already for that, please stop by the tent on the way out. Grab your tickets. We'd love to have you be a part of that. There is limited seating. We can't have, we can't have everybody uh, come. There wouldn't be room, so please grab your tickets for that next Sunday. Open your Bibles to First Peter. Chapter 4, continue our study through the letter here that Peter wrote to the early church, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Many times this happens in our study through God's word. We come to that word that starts out our study, therefore. Peter's going to use it several more times as we continue through his letters. But always that needs us to immediately draw our attention back to the thought that he was just expounding on, that he was just talking with, what we finished up on last week. We talked about that in the final verses of chapter 3, we are called to identify ourselves through physical baptism, what happened in, inside of us, the change that happened when we now identify ourselves with the physical death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. His, his physical death taking the punishment for our sin and his resurrection standing in victory over sin and death and the grave. And we now identifying ourselves with that completed act on our behalf. That, that, that this death occurred, this suffering in the flesh, and we now identify ourselves with that. There must be a death in us. Not a physical death, but a spiritual death, a death to that old self, and now a new life that we walk in. 
We are a new creature now in Christ. We have this new life born again. A transformation must take place. We have this victory, yes. And as a matter of fact, Paul discusses this very victory in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting in verse 55, he says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Quoting the prophet Isaiah. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, again, as Peter is doing in our text, Paul does here, because of this fact, he says, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. There needs to be a change. There needs to be a recognizable change in our lives from our old self that is now dead Now moving forward in this newness of life. And Peter, in our text here, verse 1, tells us that we need to arm ourselves. Arm ourselves. That requires action. Purposeful action. He says, arm yourselves for this purpose. We don't just go around doing something just for the sake of doing something. There's a purpose involved. We are now soldiers in this war, this battle that is going on. Though we have ultimate victory, as we talked about last week, Jesus proclaimed that victory, that victory is is done, and the blessing in that comes from us that as we fight now, we fight from a position of victory, but the battle still needs to go. There still is a battle going on because Jesus has not yet come back to take his place and rule and reign here on earth. That, I believe, is coming and coming very soon. But he, the, the prince of the power of the air, the, our, the demonic forces, the world around us still is in control of what is going on in the world here around us. And there is a battle that we need to fight regularly, continually, as well as with our flesh. We are still housed in this flesh, though we are born again a new being in spirit. There's this ongoing battle, and we need to be, as Paul is telling us and Peter is telling us, we need to be prepared, we need to be proactive, we need to be persistent in this battle, never giving up, never laying down for a moment. This word, arming yourself, literally spoke of a soldier picking up and taking up his weapons in preparation for battle. That is the picture that Peter gives us. And he says, when we do this, because we are, we are identifying ourselves with the suffering of our Lord, we are taking up these weapons because of this, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, in first reading of that, and many people have, have taken that to mean that as a Christian, we, sh- we, we don't sin anymore. And if you've sinned, you need to question whether you have actually been saved. That is not what Peter is saying here. As a matter of fact, we can look to Romans chapter 6. Paul says, uses similar language. He says in verse 11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your bodies to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. Sin is no longer our master. Sin has been defeated. The power of sin has been defeated at the cross. The penalty has been paid for us and the power of sin over us has been defeated. We need to, again, fight from this position. 
It does not mean, however, that we won't ever sin as Christians. The enemy will always and continually use that as Christians, as we strive to live this life, as we fight this battle regularly. The enemy will come against us and, and with condemning language, saying, oh, you call yourself a Christian, huh? Really? A Christian wouldn't do that. A Christian wouldn't think that. A Christian wouldn't say that. Coming against us in condemnation. But the Bible is clear. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But many have taken it to the other extreme as well. That as a Christian, now you have license to do whatever you want because you've been covered in the blood. That means that nothing's off limits for you. And again, that is not true either. The Bible is clear. As a matter of fact, if you read 1 John chapter 3, John is extremely clear that if there has been no change in your life, if you continue to live as you always have lived, you are not born again. You are not a child of God. As a matter of fact, he lays it out in a, in very convincingly. But again, he's not saying that we will never sin. I, one of my favorite quotes from Adrian Rogers, I've used it often, but I think it sums it all up. He says, being a Christian, being born again, does not mean that you won't sin anymore. It means that you won't sin and enjoy it anymore. <laughs> you cannot go on and continue to sin as you always have and, ha and not have, no, not, not condemnation, but conviction. The Holy Spirit speaking to your heart saying, that's not you anymore. That's your old self. That's your, that's your old life. You're dead to that. As Paul calls us in Romans 6, as we read, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Again, we've been freed from the penalty. Jesus took the penalty for our sin. That death he took to the cross. We have freedom now. We have power over sin and the Holy Spirit within us. And eventually, ultimately, when we are in eternity with our Lord, we will be free from the very presence of sin. But bottom line, as we finish up this before we move on, guys, as, as born-again believers, we need to live as though we've died. That has to, that we have to live a life as though we have died to that old self. Now, I heard, I heard just a really brief st statement earlier this week that's really stuck with me as to illustrate this. And a lot of times when we have those things that just kind of stick with you, and I hope this one sticks with you even though it's a little graphic, but it says, dead men don't scratch. And, and for, yeah, sure, dead men don't scratch. Okay, well, we are dead to ourselves, dead to our old selves, dead to our flesh. And because of that, we no longer scratch the itches that used to drive us. And to illustrate that, as I've thought through that this week, I don't know if you've ever had one of those horrible rashes or an allergic reaction to something, but one of my favorite hobbies that I just started out, I really enjoyed it, was regripping golf clubs. I love golf, and I wanted to do that and everything, but I am, like, ridiculously allergic to the solvent that's used to regrip golf clubs. I can't even be around it, the fumes, but I didn't know that at first. So the first couple of times I tried it, I broke out... So bad, my eyes swelled shut, blisters all over my face, all over my hands, and it itched like crazy. Well, if you've ever had anything like that, you know that scratching that itch provides momentary, temporary relief, but it makes the problem much worse, right? I mean, you, you, you scratch off the scabs and all of this other stuff, and you get temporary relief, but the itch then spreads and it becomes worse. The only way that you can get rid of that itch is two things. One, to ignore it, and two, to busy yourself doing something else. 
Because if you just ignore it and you just try to sit there and not do anything, it overwhelms you and then you're like, oh, okay. But if you busy yourself doing something else, I would go out, I'd start, I'd work out, I'd go get my mind on other things. And before you know it, that the itch went away and the rash healed. Dead men don't scratch. Well, verse 3 He continues this thought of this new life that we are to walk in. He says, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you don't run with them into the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter says, we've already, we've already done this. We've already had this time to run and, and chase after all of the things that the world offers and that our flesh, our old flesh, so, so craved. And he gives quite a list. Sensualities, lust, drunkenness, partying, drinking, going out and doing all of those things. But notice also, he puts in this list abominable idolatries. Idolatries. We can... Very often in our own minds, we can set aside idolatry as, as that worshiping of, of an idol, something, something physical, something tangible. But idolatry in and of itself, in its very plain and simplest and most pointed definition, is anything that we worship instead of God or alongside God. Many times we can even justify it saying, hey, I'm worshiping God I'm worshiping God on Sunday morning. Yeah, I I worship the Broncos on Sunday night, but I'm worshiping God in the morning. No, it's anything that replaces him or that we place on the same level as him. And that can be any number of things, money, possessions, your job, hobbies, sports, pleasure. But one of the ones I think that that often gets overlooked is, is worshiping our image, our own image. You see, we were created in the image of God, imagio Deo. But so often we're far more concerned with imagio Mio, right? <laughs> what does everybody else think of me? That's, that's what's most important. We spend so much time buying stuff that we don't need to impress people we don't even like. And it's all because of my image. Well, Peter says that's idolatry. And he's saying that we need to be done with that. That is a part of our life that needs to be over and dealt with and done, dead. He, he very clearly draws the delineation in verse 2 between the will of God and verse 3, the desires of the Gentiles. There needs to be this clear break, this old stuff that we used to go after and the new life that we now pursue and we have in Christ. All of history, all of human history is divided by the life death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Don't let any textbook tell you any differently. All of history is dated either B.C. or A.D. B.C. standing for before Christ, not B.C.E. before the common era. What is that? Other than man's attempt to erase the truth. All of history is divided by this one life. And our history needs to be divided by that too. As we sang earlier, this is my story. Our history, our story needs to be marked by an invasion of him in our life. That before Christ days, that we have left behind. 
And we move forward now in the newness of life, in the strength of the Holy Spirit. It needs to be a different life. Peter is saying it needs to be a marked life, and he points out in our verses here, in verse 4, that those that we used to run with, those that we used to hang out with, they better be shocked at your new life. They better be surprised at your new life. And if they're not, refer back to point number one, because we're moving on. <laughs> if people can't see a difference, you need, to, you need to go back and say, Lord, I, I need that in me. I, be, I want that difference in my life and, and, and examine your life. But we need to see and understand what Peter is saying here. We're running a different race now. They're surprised that we won't run with them. Well, they're running a different race than we are now. We have a, a different finish line. We have a different race completely. We're running in a different direction, and we have a different reward author of Hebrews chapter 12 says this, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, this new race now, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For we consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. We are to consider him. And notice it says here in Hebrews that he endured such hostility towards him from sinners, from the world around us. And Peter is telling us in our, in our text that that's going to happen to us too. When we stop running with them, when we stop going the way of the world, it says that they will malign us. Now, I want to pause here because this is, this is really cool. As I studied through this this week, this just so blessed me and I pray it does you too. This word malign is the Greek word blasphemeo, which is where we get the term blasphemy. Now, why is that important? I don't believe it's a mistake. I believe the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write blasphemy here because we can all agree that those speaking against Jesus, as we just read in Hebrews chapter 3, that's blasphemy, right? Because it's speaking against holy things. It's speaking against sacred things. That is blasphemy. That's how we understand it. I believe God understands it that way too. And my point is, God considers you sacred and holy because you're his. And when the world speaks against you, God considers that blasphemy. Speaking against one of his. I've used this illustration quite a while ago, but it so, it so touches me as to how, the point I want to make. When, when our kids were little, my, my son Zach, he was maybe two. He was still in a car seat, I remember. He was still buckled into the big car seat. I can still remember it like it was yesterday. And my daughter Brianna was sitting in the middle seat right behind us, and we were driving somewhere. And my daughter... Just, just as cute as could be, said, hey, Dad, guess what? I can spell Mississippi. And I was thinking, there's no way my daughter could spell Mississippi, but I'm playing along. And I said, sure, okay, honey, how do you spell Mississippi? And she said, M-R-S dot I-P-P-I. She spelled Mrs. Ippy. 
And I got to tell you, as cute as that sounds, that doesn't even come close to how cute it was to be there, to hear my daughter say that. And my wife and I are in the front seat, and we just think that's so cute, and we're laughing and all this stuff. And I look up in the rearview mirror, and my daughter is crying because she thinks we're laughing at her. And that's not the point. The point is my, my two-year-old son is constrained in his seat, and it's a good thing because he wanted a piece of me because I'm laughing at his sister. And he, I, 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 he was just, he was red, and he was like, uh, I mean, he, he wanted a piece of me. <laughs> Nobody talks about my sister that way, except me, right? <laughs> they love each other, but nobody's going to get away with talking about his sister that way. He has a jealous love for his sister. A jealous love. Did you know that one of the names for God is jealous? Elkanah. It's because he has a jealous love for you. As born-again believers, as his children, he has a jealous love for you. And when people speak against you, oh. We see it illustrated in in uh, Numbers chapter 12, we don't have time to turn there. You can read the story later. Moses, Moses leading the children of Israel and his, his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam, they speak out against him. They bring some things against him. They start speaking negatively of him. And God says, excuse me, you're gonna talk against my anointed? And I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he says, you three, come here. <laughs> the three of you come and stand before me. And bottom line, they walk away from that. Moses exalted Miriam with leprosy. And Moses, again, man, the more I study his life and the more I read and we're going through that, we're in Leviticus on Wednesday nights, I just, I love the humility of Moses because instead of saying, yeah, don't ever do that again, he, he falls on his knees and prays that God would heal her, and he does. But again, that's the seriousness that God takes that. This is my guy. You don't speak against him. And we need to know that 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 is what is surrounding us. That is what is behind us, Elkanah, this jealous love for us. And those who speak against us, we need to pray as Moses did for them. God, have mercy on them. But ultimately, if they don't repent and come to a saving knowledge of him as Lord and Savior, they will be judged, as he says in verse 5. We will face this malignment. We will face the world coming against us. It's very, very real in a lot of parts of the world today where it can even cost you your life, and it was extremely real in Peter's day that standing up for Jesus could cost you your life. And in verse 6, he says, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Some people take this verse and teach that God here is saying in his word that there's a second chance for salvation, that after you die, you can receive the gospel afterwards. That's not at all what this is saying. The Bible is very clear on that fact. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 tells us that for every man it's appointed once to die. After that becomes judgment. 
You need to receive the Lord on this side while you are still taking in breath because once you, are, once you have died, it is too late. That is not at all what he is saying here. I believe very clearly, based on the context of what he's talking about, suffering and dying, that he's giving encouragement to those who are still alive, saying those who have died, those who have suffered and died in the flesh, we haven't all gotten there, but some have. And though they have been judged as men here and killed for their belief, they are alive in spirit. They can, never, they can never take that life away. That eternal life is guaranteed. It was paid on the cross. They've trusted in that. Verse 7, he continues on and again in his encouragement saying, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The end is near. The end is near. Now this was, again, 2,000 years ago that this was written. Peter's saying, guys, the end of all things is near. Now he wasn't alone. Paul often spoke in the first person, believing that he was going to be alive when Jesus returned. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote in James chapter 5, verse 8, the coming of the Lord is near. The author of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 37 says, In a very little while he who is coming will come. John wrote, 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour. All of these, all of these believed that the Lord could come back at any moment and that we were, they were in the last days. Now that being 2,000 years ago, were they totally fooled? They duped? No. No, Jesus said no one knows. No one knows the hour. No one knows the time. Peter also wrote, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The reason that they believed it then and it still not hasn't happened yet and we are in the last days as they were, the reason that day hasn't come yet is because God is patient toward you. Anybody glad he didn't come 20 years ago? He is patient toward us. Why, why is it so important? Why do all of them continually say this, though? Why is there such a, an emphasis on the fact that we are in the end? We are, we, we are running out of time. It's because we need to have this urgency. They're all referring to this, and I believe that the, the Lord continually makes this emphasis in the point that his return will be sudden and it will be unexpected. He uses that illustration of a thief breaking in and, and those types of things. It'll be sudden and unexpected. We need to live our lives with anticipation and expectation. I think it's a, it's a great exercise that we continually ask ourselves regularly, if I knew for certain, for certain, absolutely no doubt that Jesus was gonna return in the next 24 hours, would it change the way I live my life the next 24 hours? We can become very lazy and, and lackadaisical in, in our walk, even as Christians, because we keep thinking, yeah, they've been saying this forever, that it's the last days, that he could come back at any time. But it's true. There's not one thing remaining on the prophetic calendar that needs to happen before he returns. All of it's been fulfilled completely. The next thing we're waiting for is that trumpet blast, and we all go to meet him in the sky. That's next. And that could happen today. 
So again, we have to continually ask ourselves the question, because that's true, if I knew that, if I, if I really believed that, would I live my life differently? Would it change what I saw in the movies? Would it change how I reacted to the person giving me change at the, at the grocery store? Would it change how I responded when I'm golfing with the guys who don't know the Lord? Would it change that? It should. It says that because this is true, verse 7, we should live with sound judgment and sober spirit. That means that, that we shouldn't be panicked when we turn on the news and we read what's going on in the government, we read what's going on in the world, we see what's all of this stuff. It shouldn't panic. We shouldn't have panic about that. The disasters that are happening and the alliances that are being made and all of that kind of stuff that should not bring panic to a born-again believer. But it also doesn't mean just because we don't panic, it doesn't mean we pack it in either. It doesn't mean that we just sit back, sell all of our belongings, and, and go and sit in the driveway and look up at the sky. We need to live like the Lord could return today, but plan like he's going to return long after we leave. That needs to, to govern the way that, that we respond and the way that we act. The, the, the cry of the Revolutionary War Minutemen was, trust in God and keep your powder dry. That needs, to, that needs to be the same type of thing as, as we walk, trusting the Lord. He could come back at any moment, but planning for it's way down the road, and we have work to do in the meantime. And the secret to it all is prayer, for the purpose of prayer, verse 7. Paul writes, Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't panic. Don't pack it in. Pray. Pray. God, the, 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 make your requests known in, in joy, in peace, and then his peace that surpasses all comprehension will flood us and guide us and direct us. Now, verse 8 begins the next little section. He says, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. I think it's interesting that word keep is in there. That means that it should already be here. <laughs> fervent love should be defining us, no? As Christians, fervent love should define us, the love for one another. So he's saying, keep it. And he's also saying with that, if you don't have that, get it now. If you have it, keep it. If you don't, get it. Keep. Fervent. That is in, means intense and determined. Zealot is, comes from that word. Intense love. And again, the word here, love, agape. Not phileo, not eros. Agape. That is the Greek word here. For one another. The end times for us as believers that we live in should be defined by fervent love for one another. Jesus said that the end times, in, in Matthew 24, 12, the end times would be marked by most people's love growing cold. Now, when we look around the world around today, do we see that? That people's love 
growing cold for, for each other, love for mankind, love for your fellow man, that love growing cold. Don't have to watch much of the news and hear what's going on to disagree with that. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says that the last days will be marked by men becoming lovers of themselves. Do we see that everywhere? So Jesus tells us that, that the end times will be marked by love growing cold. Paul says love of, of ourselves will be the mark of the unbeliever. But again, Peter says the mark of the believer in the end times, believing that we truly are living in these last days, should be marked by fervent love for one another. Now notice he starts verse 8 with above all. Above all. That means this is the primary thing, guys. This is of paramount importance. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't a nice thing to do. This is, this is required of us. And when we do this, I see very clearly four benefits, four, four things that, that as to why it's so important. First of all, we are blessed. We are blessed. Now, that's not why we fervently love one another, but when we do, we are blessed. We receive blessings that we would have never thought to ask for prior to living that way. And I'm sure that we could spend hours talking about that amongst each other, how we have been so blessed when we step out of ourselves, get away from our selfishness, and fervently love somebody else, how we receive that blessing. Secondly, as I already touched on, Jesus said that the world around us that doesn't know him will see this love and know that we belong to him. But thirdly, as we're going to see in verses 8 through 10, when we fervently love one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ are blessed. They're edified. They're encouraged. They're strengthened. And lastly, in verse 11, we see that when we fervently love one another, God is glorified. We see as we continue verse 8, though, that the one and others are encouraged, are strengthened, because love this fervent love covers a multitude of sins. Love does not expose sin. Many people believe that their gift is to sniff out sin and share it with everybody. <laughs> That's not a gift. That's gossip. And unfortunately, the heart behind gossip so often is the desire to tear others down and to raise ourselves up. We want to expose their darkness and show how light we are. That's malice. Gossip and malice, two of the biggies. Sin. That can't define us. That can't define us. As a matter of fact, Peter is telling us the exact opposite. We are to cover sin. That does not mean cover over. doesn't mean pretend it doesn't exist. When I think of covering something, I think of completely protecting it. We are to stand in the gap for that person. We are to pray for that, that person who is involved in sin. We are to pray for them. We are to come alongside them. We are to do whatever it takes to restore them. That's what covering is. But I believe it goes even a step further in what Peter is talking about. If you go back and we read, we don't have time to do it now, but starting in chapter 2 and read all the way through as we're going through this, Peter continually brings up the fact that we are not to respond in kind to those who come against us, even amongst the one and others, even amongst believers. And I believe what he's saying here is love covers a multitude of sin. 
that someone has sinned against me amongst the body. I'm not going to expose that. I'm not going to hold it against them. I'm not gonna, it's completely covered. It's covered in the blood of Christ. And I choose to forgive that regardless. Regardless of what they've done or said, love covers that sin. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but blessing instead, if you remember from a couple weeks ago. Verse 9 says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Hospitable, that word meaning generous for the most part, but it had a very specific practical meaning that back then. It literally meant to open your home to a total stranger if necessary. Somebody comes in from out of town, they're a believer, you have some room in your home, you say, hey, you come stay with me. Understanding the, the culture back then and what this word meant we, 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 you see it outlined several times as, as you read through the Gospels, but literally you would, you would rather die than not be hospitable to, so, to a total stranger even coming into your town. That's how important it was. And we are to be that way with one another. Now again, us as Westerners, now we don't really have a whole big problem with, with being hospitable, being generous, you know, sharing our time and, and stuff with people as long as it fits into our time schedule, right? And as long as... We pretty much get along on everything, and we don't disagree on too much. You know, I, hey, I, you know, I, I'd love to hang out with you guys tonight, as long as you're Bronco fans, and, you know, all of that. <laughs> you know, as long as, as long as we don't disagree on anything, and as long as we're, we're good with this, as long as it fits into my time, I'm good with that. But that's not what it says. It says that we are to be, to be hospitable. That means, again, when it's inconvenient, going out of our way. One another, again, verse 8, and yes, I believe he's still meaning even those that have hurt you, even those who have come against you, even those who have said things, done things to hurt you. Yes, them too. That's hard, but it gets harder. He says, without complaint. Be hospitable without complaint. That word yes means murmuring, audible, don't go, hey, yeah, I'd love to spend you know, no mumbling, no complaining, but it even goes further. The word literally means secret displeasure not openly shared, and here we get to the heart. We are to be generous and loving and open and spending time and giving of ourselves to those who have hurt us with a heart that doesn't even doesn't even have a negative thing towards them, not even complaining to ourselves in the, in the darkness of our own room by ourselves complaining against this. Guys, the, the, the end is near. That Peter is making this point, and we are going to spend eternity with one another. We may as well practice getting along here because <laughs> we're going to spend eternity together there. And also, just one last point before we, we move off of, off of this. The whole part about without complaining, again, I believe is a heart thing. Without saying something negative about them, I draw you back to what I talked about earlier. If we are murmuring and complaining against one another, don't forget that same Elkanah, jealous love that the Lord has for you, he has for them. We all like to be the Moses in the story. We all like to be the one that's being spoken against and God's standing up for us. Nobody wants to volunteer to be Miriam in that story. But that's what we do when we speak against each other. Well, verse 10, 
As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We have all received gifts. When we are, when we are born again, yes, we die to our old self, we walk in the newness of life, but God then also, through the power of his spirit, gives us all gifts. Everyone, no one is exempt. Everyone receives, receives at least one. Most everybody receives multiple gifts that we are to use, as it says here, to serve one another. The gifts were not given for you to hoard and enjoy for yourself. The gifts were given so that you can serve one another as good stewards, it says. Good stewards, that means someone who manages the property of somebody else. So the gift that's been given to you doesn't even belong to you. It still belongs to God. He's giving it to you to use to bless others. Now understand, everyone has been given a gift. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 7, 7, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So everyone is given a gift, but Paul also tells us that no gift is more important or no gift less necessary than another gift. They are all important. Every one is important and necessary. We need each other. If you are not serving the body of Christ in some capacity, you are actually hurting the body of Christ. Because you have something that's been given to you that is necessary, and you're keeping it to yourself. Now many people, I've, I talk about this a lot, I've had many people come up to me, I just don't know what my gift is. Well, pray. Pray that God would show you what that gift is. He doesn't want it to be a secret. He wants you to know it. He wants you to use it. It's not a game to him. So pray. And while you are waiting for an answer from him, serve somewhere. Serve somewhere. And I will, I will venture to say that where you start serving, you will find the gift there. You will find that, man, this is where God's been leading me this whole time. We need, we need a lot of help here within the church, functioning here at the church on a, on a weekly basis. Bill mentioned we need help tomorrow. Guys, men specifically, from 1 o'clock till 7 o'clock, can you spare an hour or two to come here and load boxes onto the truck? To load boxes onto the truck that are going to go around the world and bless kids? We're, we're constantly looking at filling holes and stuff here within the church. And if you don't know where that is, just fill out a ministry application, get it turned in, and we'll meet with you, we'll talk with you, we'll figure out where that is. But we need you. But if it's not here, you need to be serving somewhere. You need to be doing something somewhere to serve the body of Christ. It says the manifold grace of God, multiple gifts, coming from all, in all different shapes and sizes. They're his gifts. He gives them, but we are responsible to manage them. Now he gives some specifics. Verse 11, he says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. If you have the gift of, of teaching or sharing, it is an amazing gift. It is a remarkable gift. It is such a huge blessing. I have to tell you, that it, that it is a gift. God, God equips the called. He doesn't, he doesn't call the equipped. He gives what is needed when the calling comes. And I go back to one of the very first times that I ever had the opportunity to teach. It was at the first men's retreat that I had a, a, a chance to teach in. And I can remember going through the weekend and I'm thinking, man, how, 
How can I follow this teacher? If, you, if you, many of you have been around Calvary Chapel for a long time, know Calvary Chapel, Don McClure was the teacher that weekend. Don McClure has been part of Calvary Chapel from the beginning. Great friends with Chuck Smith. He actually now is overseeing Calvary Chapel Association. And Don McClure was the teacher that weekend. And I, I was asked to do the final teaching. And I'm, I got there that morning, way before everybody else, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I can't do this. Who am I kidding? I can't follow Don McClure. I mean, he was so anointed all week and his teaching was just so amazing. What am I doing here? I couldn't eat breakfast. Everybody else is eating breakfast. There's no way I could get anything down. And I, I was really wrestling with the fact is I'm going to take off and start running in the woods and just keep on running. <laughs> Somebody else will pick this up. I can't do this. But God spoke to my heart in that moment and said, what is in your hand? And I looked down and I'm holding the Bible and I said, well, it's your word, Lord. And it spoke to me so clearly, he says, it's the same word that was in Don's hand. You just open it and share what I lead you to share. And I tell you, that was, the, that was such a blessing for me because it says we need to understand as teachers that we are speaking the utterances of God. If you're coming here on the weekends to hear me, don't bother. <laughs> the utterances of God, God's word is what will change your life. God's word is what has the impact. And it's an enormous blessing to be able to teach God's word, but it also comes with an enormous responsibility. James chapter 3 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. So if that, is, if that is what God has given you the calling to do, understand that you need to take that responsibility as though teaching the utterances of God with that, that responsibility that comes with it. But he goes on, not, not all are called for that. Few are, actually. But he says, whoever serves is to do so as the one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. If you are called to serve, and we all are, and use that gift to serve one another, we are to serve not only with the gift that he supplies, but with the strength that he supplies to use it. And I say that because I hear often people say, man, I'm just burned out. I'm burned out on ministry. If you are burned out in ministry... One of two things has happened. One, you're serving in the wrong capacity. God, you were trying to use somebody else's gift to do it. Or, more than likely, you are serving where you're supposed to be using the gift that you've been given, but you're using your strength, not God's. Because God is not going to put you in a position and fail to give you the strength that you need to serve there. There is no burnout when we are using God's strength. He never runs out of it. <laughs> so if you are burned out, it is because you are doing it in your strength, not his. And you simply just need to take a step back and say, reassess this and say, Lord, show me where. And then continue to move forward. Going forward in his strength, the strength that God supplies. And when we do this and we follow these steps that he's laid out for us in these verses, we see at the end of verse 11, the purpose of it all, so that in all things God may be glorified. Through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In all things, he is glorified. When we, when we leave that old life behind and we walk in the newness of life, he is glorified. When we are, when we are maligned 
and, and people speak against us because we stand up for him. We stand up for his word. He is glorified. When we look anticipating his return at any moment, he is glorified. When we love one another fervently, he is glorified. When we cover a multitude of sins by our love, he is glorified. When we are hospitable to each other, he is glorified. When we use our gifts to serve one another, he is glorified. That's the end of it all. That's the purpose. That's why, that's why we do this because, quite frankly, gang, bottom line is he's the only one who deserves any glory. He's the only one. Father, we, we thank you for the power of your word, the clarity of it. Lord, I, I thank you for this study. I thank you for the, the, the realization of how important we are to you, how much you love us, that jealous love. Lord, when I think of jealousy, it's a bad thing because it's in my flesh that I've displayed jealousy. But Lord, in your perfect heart, in your love, Elkanah, that jealousy is a beautiful thing because it, it covers us, it watches over us. Lord, I pray that each one of us here, born again believers that are in this room, Lord, would leave with a renewed sense of that love that you have poured out on us and we are to display to one another. Lord, I do pray for those that are here today that don't know how they are to be serving, how they are to be using the gifts you've given them. Lord, I pray you, get, you meet with them clearly, quietly, and show them. And that they would have this desire to, to serve, to get plugged in using those gifts, to bless your body here, Lord. Lord, we don't take any of this lightly. You have given us all new life. We're challenged by this, but we know that we move forward in your strength by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We praise you. We give you all glory. In Jesus' name, amen.